Today's episode is brought to us by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's exactly what you would write in the sand if you were stuck on an island, right? H-E-L-P, help. And then you see the helicopter go by, you start waving. BetterHelp is that helicopter. They are the ones that will save you. They will pick you up. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, it's been a sense of feeling inadequate or uh, afraid of expressing my needs. Because like, if I express my needs and they say no and they find out what I really want, they're going to leave and I'll be abandoned and I have to start all over again. And, and also just comparing myself to other people. Every time I compare, I get on social media and I see the, the amazing life that other people are living, it just makes me want to just curl up and stop doing everything that I'm doing. But BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, I understand when you are in uh, despair and, and you are spiraling, you just feel like the last thing I want to do was talk to anybody, but it's the best thing to do. When, when I was in trouble, when I couldn't see my way through the, the, the thickness, through the darkness, it was talking to someone, especially a professional therapist that guided me through. I still have a therapist. I have not only my own therapist, but I have a couple's therapist. So me and my girlfriend have a therapist. Like, therapy, talking to someone is so beneficial, but it doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of it. Now, I want you to remember that is not a crisis line. Better help is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with, as with traditional therapy. You could kick back at the crib at your house in Sukasa and get your therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And here's the kicker, ladies and gents. Financial aid is available. That's right. But you, ain't, you don't have to go to college. College ain't the only one doling out financial aid. BetterHelp has financial aid because BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily, right? Check them out. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. I got a slash before the name. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using better help that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer. Here's a special offer. Check this out. Right, this, just, this just came in just now. Special offer for my Before You Kill Yourself listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. Just for tuning in, just for being a, a friend, uh, an ally, uh, just somebody who I could just, who I enjoy spending my time with, 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash 
Leo. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Orla Ree. She is coming to us from Ireland, which I want to go to so badly. Um, my sister's been in Scotland. I'm so jealous. It just looks so green in all the crime shows. It's like, <laughs> I guess it's like green and red because it's always a, that's the only way I know of, of Ireland is from the Netflix uh, TV shows. But anyway, uh, Orla Reed is a psychotherapist in Ireland and we connected through via Twitter. Is it through Twitter, via Twitter? Um, and I, she, you know, we, we corresponded back and forth with, you know, making comments on each other. And I was like, oh my God, this is a fascinating person. And then she reached out and said that, you know, she struggled with depression and suicide. So welcome to the podcast, Orla Reed. Thanks, Leo. Thanks a million for having me. This is a long time coming. I think I've been listening to your podcast for about three years and I've met some great therapists because of this podcast. So I'm really, really happy to be talking to you this evening. So, I, you know, I want to really jump into it because it is 9 p.m. where you are. So, you know, I, I'm sure it's close to your bedtime. Talk to us about what I so let me give some context here and tell me if this resonates. When I look up Ireland and the history of Ireland, you know, I discovered that there was a, a period called the Troubles where there was a, a huge conflict for about 30 years. It ends. And then all of a sudden, the suicide rate spikes in Ireland. It doesn't like more people died post the 30 year conflict than during. And and then they so then they were talking about how not only were the parents affected, but then the children that were that had that witnessed their parents going through it were affected. So now they're raised by parents who have PTSD from the war. Can you tell me where you fall in all of that, what your knowledge is of all that? I, you know what, I think when you look at a lot of the research about suicide, that's not an uncommon pattern. You know, we see the suicide rates drop when there is conflict and war in a country because that natural resilience kicks in, that kind of survival strategy. And I think that that's and not an unusual trend that suicides increase then after. Um, but in terms of the troubles here in Ireland, I, I would have been very much detached from that. I was um, I grew up in Dublin uh, in the 80s. I probably was very sheltered from that. You know, we were a long way from the troubles. So by the time I got into my 20s, a lot of that had really settled down um so I've been quite detached from that I mean you hear a lot about it growing up but you know when you're young you're just really focused on your house your road your school your friends um but thankfully we've been in a really good place for a long long time now um yeah that's a, a really positive thing for this country so talk to me about growing up in Dublin and what you feel like contributed to the depression and suicidality. Mm -hmm. I had a really usual childhood. I'll say I didn't have parents from traumatic 
backgrounds or addiction or anything like that but I guess at some point in my life I was always jigging you know growing up I was always jigging thinking there's something wrong with me you know for me I just I just really found living difficult I don't think that sounds crazy to say doesn't it um but actually in my late 30s I realized when I started to understand attachment attachment theory and uh, it's really interesting that I was just born anxious I was an anxious child um very nervous deep thinker very introverted so my coping skills wouldn't have been good I guess my own thoughts were my own coping skills um I grew up with strong parents that were very different and uh with four girls so that was a really interesting um, upbringing um so for me I, I believe that I would have experienced childhood depression uh, I had a, a an eating disorder when I was young that was never diagnosed at the time um you had a what I lost you, that. That? you had a what when you were born? An, an eating disorder when I was very young from a very young age um it was never diagnosed it was never picked up but it was really obvious you know I, I guess that wouldn't be unusual either sure it wouldn't having an eating disorder or coping mechanisms when you suffer a lot of anxiety um so for me food was a way of controlling things uh, and being in control um so I guess I just grew up very anxious and that was very prevalent but I coped and got on with it and it's really only when I kind of got into my mid-20s that it started becoming problematic you know when you throw in it's a very difficult time isn't it you know that 20s phase where you're in college and you're supposed to get your life together and you know that kind of catapult into adulthood um so for me in my 20s then anxiety progressed I had a lot of really deep transitions in my early 20s I didn't have coping skills. Um, and so I suppose what happened for me was that anxiety progressed. Uh, I would have had long periods where anxiety was very manageable. Um, you know, yourself, when you're anxious, it's just a part of how you function in the world. You don't think of it as being something of a weakness. It's just how you see the world. It's how I functioned in the world. It's how I thought about things. Um, but I guess a whole series of events brought me to a place where that anxiety progressed into panic attacks. And over a long period of time, that developed into depression. Um, but, you know, I functioned the whole time, which is something that that happens. A lot of people are fully functioning and experience varying degrees of depression. Um, yeah, so that's a part of my story, I guess. Talk to me, please, about anxiety to panic attacks to depression. And the reason why I'm asking this is a lot of times we don't know where we are in that spectrum. We're not aware of what feelings are anxiety, what feelings are depression, what feelings are panic attacks. Can you talk to us about anxiety and then lead us into panic attacks and then into depression? Mm -hmm. What that felt like for you? sensory wise like chest throat the weight of it the whatever that was um and then what do you feel like the duration was yeah it's really hard to tell 
uh, it's really hard to tell what's going on with you when you are your only radar, you know. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having a therapist is that they can see things from a perspective that you don't have the capacity to see. Um, and I'm so thankful that I had a therapist there just at a really good time where she was able to say, this is what's happening. This is what I can see is going on for you. These are all of the factors that you are um, trying to deal with right now. You know, so for me, I would have had anxiety for long periods of time. It would have set in. Uh, I, I, it's very hard to tell when depression sets in. Um, can you can you remember what that was like? You know, that slow, it's very creeping. Um, so what happened for me, I guess, was that I would have had long periods of anxiety and then big transitions. I moved abroad two times to the other side of the world, um, away from family, uh, just away from friends, not really knowing what the future was going to hold. Um, and I also went from winter into a winter into a winter. Um, and so other factors that I would have been managing was having SAD, you know, so when I look at all the different factors, there's so many things that contribute to anxiety, but you can't see them when you're just in that functioning mode. So I guess what happened to me was I was away and then I came back. So that was more transitions and more stress. I had a long-term relationship come to an end because um, I didn't really know what was going on for me. It was very confusing time. So that was more stress compounded. Um, and then when you talk about that attachment, I would have had no sense of stability or security. And I really felt that I started to drift. So that developed into quite severe panic attacks. Um, and panic attacks for me would have really happened, I guess, in enclosed spaces, on buses, in the office, in supermarkets, somewhere that I couldn't just move and be in control of the situation um so they got so bad that actually I just kind of stopped going out for long periods of time so that would have been in my mid-20s um and I still managed to go to work I worked in an office I would have been training to be a complimentary health therapist so I still managed to function and do a lot of those things but my stress levels um overall would have kept going up um, and then, you know, there would have been periods of time where I would have done OK. Um, but you develop these really uh, maladaptive coping mechanisms, you know, so I would start to control where I would go or where I wouldn't go um, and avoid situations that would escalate a panic attack. Um, and in doing that, you're not really dealing with the panic attack so much. Um, and I guess what happened was over a period of time of anxiety and panic attacks and huge change in my life and attachment, you know, losing that sense of security, it did develop into depression for me. Um, and so that would have brought me to therapy at that point in time. Um, and for me, therapy was that really safe space to just offload and unburden and just share what felt like total inner chaos. Um, and, you know, there is a saying about depression that it takes everything, you know, from the inside out. And that really that really was 
that really was what happened for me was a slow slow descent um and I guess my therapist was able to just say look I can see where you are right now I can see the progress you've made I can see all of these different factors that was a really grounding experience to be in a room with somebody who sees that descent and can see what's going on and I would gone every week for you know a, a couple of years really and so for me she was that really grounding person that could tell me you know you're doing okay I see what's happening um but but where you're at right now it's I, I'm here with you you don't have to be in control you don't have to know what's coming next um uh, and anxiety very much happened to me physically you know very physical feeling the the, the pains in the stomach and the not being able to breathe um heart racing um just physiological flooding over and over and over again it's quite difficult to manage um after a couple of months you say you had four sisters growing up mm, three sisters three sisters growing up three sisters <laughs> And where did you fall in that birth order? I came third. Middle child, middle child syndrome, Leo. That, so tell that me, we all talk tell me, about in therapy. So tell me more about the middle child syndrome. because, And the reason why I'm asking is a lot of times when uh, I hear you using the word control a lot. And mm. I think of the older one or the youngest one. Uh, needing a sense of control and the middle child is like the negotiator the peacekeeper kind of thing tell me about the middle child dynamic growing up third what did that what would what, you feel like your role was uh, between you and your three other sisters yeah you know what it's funny I have very I don't have really good recollection of growing up um, and I think that's because I just I, I was a real introvert, so I was really in myself growing up. So I probably didn't notice a whole lot um, of what was happening, maybe in that sibling dynamic. Um, but I guess the, the invisible child, you know, that's really how I felt. And I was very happy to be invisible. <laughs> and I spent most of my life being quite happy to be invisible and in the background and just present in myself. Um you know, I just see in my siblings, the oldest is very strong-willed. The youngest is the most sensible. She's really logical. She's the one that everybody goes to. She's really, really grounded, you know. So um, it's very interesting when they talk about that in psychology to see that reflected in your own family unit, I guess. Uh, but one of, the, one of the challenges on reflection and therapy is growing up in the 80s, and 90s it was a, a case of you know don't feel um you know just um I'm gonna say don't feel but just uh, uh it's I, I, I'm not really sure how to explain that but it was a case of I suppose everybody's parents are different aren't they but for me it was a case of if you have if you if you feel too much just deal with it you know, just deal with it and get on with it. And that was kind of the mentality that I that I perceived. It's not to say that that's maybe what my parents were trying to do, but my perception was, you know, just get on with it. Everybody has issues. 
you know, just get on with it and just go to school and just, just, you know, suppress, suppress, suppress. So I did that very well. Um, but of course, you know, when you suppress emotions, they're still there, aren't they? They're still very present. So I think probably what happened for me then in my 20s is everything came out then. You know, all of these maladaptive coping mechanisms came out in panic, in not having good coping mechanisms, in not really knowing what I was thinking and feeling, or maybe just not able to articulate it in the way that would have been really helpful for me. Can we get an example of that? Because a lot of times we hear express yourself, don't suppress your emotions. And I think that because Mm -hmm. so many people are unpracticed or unrehearsed or even unaware of how to do that. Because in my head, Mm. you know, if you're talking to me maybe 20 years ago and you say express your emotions, well, in my head, it's like F you tossing tables like that to me is what an expression of emotions are and at the same time i'd be aware that that's probably not what you mean but i don't know any other way so it take us through a moment maybe when you are upset about something how would you express that to your spouse that that not that what they did upset you but that you're just upset in general about something or anxious or whatever emotion you want to pick how do you communicate mm-hmm. that uh, for me, I I'm I would be very I would be very feelings person. You know, I'm really emotive. I wouldn't be so articulate in feelings, and you know, I feel things physiologically maybe before I can think about what's actually happening for me. So maybe back then in my twenties, I suppose I probably didn't express what I thought I was feeling. Um. And, you know, if you grow up that kind of anxious attachment style, you're always second guessing, aren't you? You know, you're always wondering, can I say this? Should I say this? If I say how I'm feeling when my partner take that the wrong way, you're not even really able to articulate what you're feeling or thinking. So for me, I think what I would have done is I would have, I mean, I would have cry a lot. That's kind of one of my coping mechanisms. And so if you have a partner then who sees crying as, maybe not not their language you know they see it as oh she's crying she's upset whereas I might be crying because I I'm flooded and I'm I'm trying to identify what I'm feeling in that moment um and now being in my 40s I know that I'm going to feel and then it takes me a couple of minutes and then I can articulate what it is I'm trying to think um so I suppose back then I, I wouldn't have verbally expressed a whole lot of what I was feeling you know come across in emotion um and you know when you have panic attacks that's a very similar pattern because you have the feeling you have a thought and then a fear and then a feeling which is run or just the heart racing the panic the feeling of getting sick um and so what I would have to do in that moment was in therapy just learn those really simple strategies around okay just go with the feeling, just sit with it. It's okay, you know, that feeling will pass in a couple of minutes. Um, and, and actually that would happen to be an awful lot in the supermarket. When I was in therapy, I, I often couldn't get to the back of the supermarket. And um, that's one of the really difficult things about getting panic attacks. Is, um, I could get to a certain point 
when things were really bad, but I could never get to the back to get milk and then get bread um, and then get to the process of waiting in the queue and paying and leaving. So I left many supermarkets um, just leaving a basket on the ground. But as I got better in therapy and better understanding how panic attacks happened, I would learn to stand and just breathe and slow down um, until you have that physiological flooding stopping and then talk myself into it. Okay, it's okay. Just take another couple of minutes. You can leave if you want to, you know. Uh, and, and this is so internal. Panic attacks are such an internal process. Um, some days would be really good. And then other days, uh, I would just have to accept that that was my limit and put the basket down and leave and try again later in the day or the next day. Um, but I, it, it must be very difficult to be in a relationship with somebody who is experiencing panic attacks because you kind of have to you have to explain what's happening. And back then at the time, I would have asked my partner, you know, when this is happening, I just need you to just don't rush. Just just stand with me. I hope that I can get through it and then maybe get to the checkout and get out that door. Um, but they're very paralyzing. So over time, I learned to articulate and verbalize what I was feeling so they could understand what was going on for me um, to get through some of those more difficult times um, it's a work in progress isn't it you know understanding how you function best in the world um, that's my experience Leo anyway absolutely it's a work in progress and I'm glad you brought that up mm -hmm. because I think that so many books and programs promise 30 days to this 10 days to that and it's not reality for a lot of us. It's who we are from day one. And it's something that we'll always have to be mindful of and manage. Right. And so I, my follow-up question to that then is when I think about flooding, I think about, I just had this conversation with my sister and she was talking about how she experiences rage. And I was like, well, how do you define rage and separate that from anger? And she said, well, anger goes from my feet to my stomach, then my head. She goes with rage. It goes from my feet straight to my head. Like it skips the stomach and I'm just off and running to the races, which I thought was a beautiful way to describe it. My question to you is this. When flooding happens, it's typically our sympathetic nervous system detecting a threat to our safety. When you're in a grocery store, what do you feel like or intuit is the threat to your safety? Yeah, I mean, it's a long time since I've had very bad panic attacks, but I guess for me, the threat to my safety at that point, I mean, it's yourself that, you know, for me, that's what it was. It was the fact that I just, I couldn't cope, so I would have to bolt. I couldn't cope with the situation and my heart rate would be racing and I think that I'm going to faint or get sick and people will be looking at me. And so I guess the, it, it wouldn't be that there would have been any physical threat to somebody from the outside. It was all internal, you know, that kind of not being able to trust yourself that you'll be OK to get through this exercise or just this supermarket experience. So the threat was just that I wouldn't be able to cope, you know. Um, I suppose it would have been also very much 
social anxiety and uh, claustrophobia. Um, and when you look at a lot of people with panic attacks, their stress levels and their flooding levels are often very high. You know, going into these general types of situations. Um, and so, like when I'm working with a, a, a client, or maybe when I was in therapy at that time, my therapist was able to say, you, you're not your your stress is very high um your self-care is poor your coping mechanisms aren't great right now so if I was to ever rate myself on a scale of one to ten I was always functioning at that eight or nine so my capacity to deal with stress was very small you know I would have only had those two points before the ten made me have a panic attack um so I guess that managing anxiety, it was an internal threat. You know, it was nothing to do with anybody else. Um, so that would make it much more difficult to manage because, you know, you become your worst enemy in those types of situations. Um, and you're not the best person to self-soothe. For me, I, I always get better if I had somebody outside of myself to do the eye contact and maybe do a little bit of breathing and say, you know what, let's just part this. We'll come back. We'll come back to it. Um, so that would have been that would have been what happened to me a lot of the time. Um, I very rarely have panic attacks now, thankfully. Um, it's a, a good number of years since I've had them, but that's probably because I spend so much time on self care and really always reducing my general stress. Um, and because of that, my capacity for those uncomfortable situations is just much higher now. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question, Leo? Absolutely. You know, and it brings up what you mentioned earlier in terms of your parents having this belief of just get on with it and, you know, mm. don't show emotional intensity. So I would imagine that as a baby, as a child, there wasn't much physical touch involved in your nurturing. And there's so much research that shows that when babies aren't soothed physically by the mother's touch, that they over time then develop an incapacity to be soothed by touch. Now touch feel, raises cortisol and stress levels and is perceived as a threat. Do you sense that at all growing up? Does that resonate on any level? I mean, you had three sisters. Was there a lot of touch and affection? Mm. How comfortable are you with that with your husband? Mm. I mean, now um, my love language would be touch. You know, for me, the long hug is the most soothing thing that I could experience. You know, that's how I feel about connection. When I think of my parents parenting style I think that um I I think that that's probably just the parenting style at the time you know one of my parents maybe wouldn't have been very articulate with emotions but my mother would have always had huge time for me and she would have been the carer you know she would have been the person that never pushed to try and understand what was going on for me but she would hold me you know that that that's probably 
how I would have experienced their parenting styles. Um, and so for now, being an adult, I'm so interested, probably what really drove me to understanding intimacy and connection and attachment is, for me, that's how I function. But for other people, it's very different. Um, but you're right, you know, it's amazing when you look at the science of hugging, touching, the eye contact, just um, an embrace from a partner, how soothing that is, you know, how it lowers the heart rate. It's really, it's incredible, really, when you look at um, all of that physiological research um, and how it's so important, isn't it? Um, that connection and that perceived connection um, when you look at it. I see it in the couples that I work with. I can tell when they're on front of me and there's a lot of body language and they're looking at each other and they're present and they sit close together. You know, those couples do so much better in therapy than maybe couples who don't have that bond, you know, that that really that kind of chemistry and that desire for closeness. Um, it's it's really interesting as a therapist to just watch that body language and how they communicate through touch or don't communicate through through touch. Is your husband's love language touch also? And if it is, is it the same kind of, you know, this is something I, I really have come to explore in terms of the love languages is that not only is it just touch or quality time, it's a certain type of touch, a certain kind of quality time, which varies from person to person, my girlfriend loves the long, the long hug. Uh, I prefer to cuddle, like to lay, like where we're laying on our sides or she's laying on my stomach, but I don't want to have to mm. hug her because hugging her for me then becomes a chore for me versus when we're cuddling, we're both in a kind of a passive state, sinking our breathing with each other. Mm. Right. So hugging is like a thing I'm doing for her. Where like when we're just laying and cuddling, it's a thing for us. What mm. is what is his level, his love language? And if it's touch, what kind of touch? Mm. Yeah, so interesting listening to you say that um, about your relationship dynamic. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would say is my husband wouldn't has never heard of love languages. <laughs> Even though I'm a therapist, we don't talk a huge about a huge amount about psychology of relationships. It's not really his thing. Um, but he is a gifter. You know, that's his love language. He he expresses love through gifting, through providing security. He's very articulate. Um, he would have a very secure attachment style. So for me, that that difference in love language, it for me anyway, it is it's um it can be difficult. You know, it can be difficult to 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 need or feel the need for closeness and affection when your partner like you know, a little bit like you doesn't quite get the same thing, you know, doesn't doesn't quite get the same thing from that physical closeness. And, you know, when you have an anxious attachment style, uh, the tendency is to think, oh, my God, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong with them? Is there something wrong with me? Have I done something wrong? So I find because our love language is different and we have slightly different attachment styles, I, in my mind, I'm always 
conscious of that. You know, I work on not catastrophizing that and reminding myself, you know, that this is how he expresses love. This is how he expresses himself. I have to work harder to be understood and for both of us to be understood by each other. Um, but, you know, today I went for, I had a day today just um, walking along the coast and it's so interesting watching couples everywhere you know all the different ways they interact and the hand holding and the closest it's a really lovely thing when you start to understand attachment to see that playing out in the world um around you so um yeah i i enjoy it so much it's a lovely way to look at the world when you're when you're exploring it through body language i don't know if you ever do that leo do you Oh, I love it. I love to see how people hold hands when people are at dinner. Are they sitting next to each other or across from each yeah. other? Is somebody on their yeah. phone? Um, is there a hand on the lap versus a hand on the shoulder versus a hand on the neck? It, like all these yeah. little things. And then what I really love is when I ask people how they met and I look to see if they light up as they're telling the story. Like, mm. does she look at him? Does he look at her? Or do they get a little giddiness? Like, what's the energy that is surrounding yeah. their origin story? Because that says a lot about mm. what they where they are right now, at least, you know, for me. And and even like how they refer to each other. Is it first name? Is it do they have nicknames for each other? All those little things. Are they grooming each other? You know, some oh, there's a little lint on your shirt, that kind of thing. Mm. yeah I, you know what that's 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 really interesting what you're saying there because I noticed that with couples in therapy um it's an Irish thing where uh men would refer to their partners the wife you know the wife says I don't do the hoovering or the wife thinks I need to be here or um or sometimes I might be in a couple session and one partner is talking about the partner who's sitting beside them, but as if they're not in the room. And I think that that type of language, that type of disconnect says an awful lot about what's happening in the relationship and maybe why there is that disconnect. Um, so that language is really important. And the chemistry, you know, some people really get chemistry. They really understand chemistry. For me, when I'm thinking about relationships I'm thinking about it from a connection point of view from an emotional intimacy point of view but I think a lot of people don't don't think about relationships in that way do you know what I mean they they think that well, this is my partner and we have a life together um, and after a period of time maybe don't think so much about the importance of the bond and bonding you know bonding all the time keeping keeping keep working on that attachment um and that's such an important thing you know when it comes to intimacy you know that you have that nice intimacy whether it's emotional or physical and um and, and that that progresses into maybe sexual intimacy um so i i i, I see different patterns of couples around that if they have the physical touch it's much easier for that to progress into maybe something more romantic isn't it yeah you, i get a massage maybe once every two weeks and massage, michelle gets her massage 
once a week. And, you know, when I look at, I, I, I study a lot of like anthropology and history and uh, hunter-gatherer tribes. And the one thing I realized that is missing from our relationship, or at least is not expressed to the extent that I believe it could be, and I desire it to be, is the evening grooming of each other. Where when you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, they, you know, they hunt, they gather all day. And then in the evening, there's the pit fire where they're cooking the food, there's music, and then they're kind of tending to each other, right? Where whether it's cutting the hair, braiding the hair, checking skin, massaging each other, it's really a period of taking care of each other physically and in a caring way, not in a way where usually, and you know, I'm going to admit this, if, if I'm touching Michelle, it's because I have an outcome in mind, right? Like it, it's, yeah. it's all outcome dependent. And I realized the importance of just everyday touch to yeah. reestablish intimacy, bond, connection. And it's also a part of seduction. I think a lot of mm-hmm. times, at least the way I was raised, it was seduction was a small window. Like you take her out to dinner, take her to a club, get her back to your place, that kind of thing. Or you get her a couple of drinks, like whatever it was. And what and when you're in a long-term relationship, you realize that seduction then has to be uh, is or is more of a long game where whatever we do Friday actually started on Monday or <laughs> Wednesday, right? Versus yeah. uh the night of seduction. It's almost like you have to find a way to build in that intimacy and connection into the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, in in that Gottman method couples therapy, that's what um, Dr. John Gottman says, isn't it? You know, every, every positive thing you do in your relationship is a form of foreplay. Um, and I, I really like that, you know, because I guess what it's saying is if if you keep working on the relationship and you keep maintaining that level of intimacy or that level of closeness and affection, that it can lead to something, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be something erotic or something sexual, but that it leads to something that keeps you romantically connected with your partner you know it leaves the door open I guess for something possibly more um but that's one of the challenges of of modern day relationships and I see it in my own work is that look at smartphones devices social media there's a lot of I mean as far as I can see it really blocks intimacy um so rather than being present in the room with your partner, you know, we're distracted, you know, those constant distractions all the time. So I really see that as being very problematic for couples when it comes to that romantic bond. Um, and I guess I, I don't think a lot of people really understand how important it is to know that piece around attachment. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but 
for me, it's only when I really got into psychology and after I think about 10 years that I, 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 I got how important knowing about the different attachment types were and, and what does that mean for me and my relationship and for my partner and our relationship. And um, so that psychoeducation, it's really valuable for couples to understand the love languages and the attachment styles and the things that can sabotage our relationship or make them stronger. I love that. And I definitely want to get into attachment styles and what can sabotage relationships. I had one follow-up question to what we were talking about earlier in terms of love languages and touch, because there are mm. so many people who are single, especially, you know, mm. elderly populations, single, lonely. If if your love language is touch, besides mm. a long hug, how do you get that for yourself? Yeah. And does it have to be from a romantic um, person? I don't I don't I don't believe so. You know, I mean, of course, if if you really want that romantic sexual connection in your life, you will find ways to have that in your life. But I think that um it touch it can it can be through family it can be through deep relationships can't it you know it can be through just um having a couple of really good friends that you 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 physically stick close to that you can op- open up with that you can spend time with but I mean I, I read that a lot in COVID that that the, you know people who are single really really struggled they were isolated they didn't they couldn't really sit with friends they they couldn't meet partners um or they couldn't really date so that that sense of loneliness and isolation it was very physical really visceral um and so I, like that's a real challenge isn't it about being single um but i guess knowing that that's a part of what you need is important isn't it that you can understand well this is what's important to me and I feel lonely because and maybe how I can manage that is by doing x y and z um rather than just not really knowing what your needs are and I I I work with a lot of single people around relationships and very often um people don't really know what it is that they need they don't know the relationship characteristics or qualities of a partner that they want in order to have a happy relationship um yeah but for me so much comes down to touch and connection and attachment and bonding um it's really underestimated leo isn't it um in how we function every day and i think when you have it it's easy to take it for granted it absolutely is. And I think it's one of the lures of sports and sports teams where there's so mm. much contact, there's so much touch, pats on the back, pats on the butt, hugs, high fives, cheers, <laughs> you know, crowds, pylons, like all these different ways of, and even hugs, whether it's a sideways, sideways hug yeah. or hug of joy or, you know, whatever it is. Like that's where you experience it the most. And unfortunately, mm. we don't experience that in a workplace, right? In a mm. workplace is the, if, we, if you work in an office, you know, and you 
you know, close a big deal or what have you, you can't touch each other anymore, you know, out of fear mm-hmm. of this allegation or that allegation or, but also a lot of work is done remotely. So there's not, there's no one around to celebrate your wins and your W's. There's no one around to witness yeah. what you've done. So it could, you can very easily feel like you haven't accomplished anything because mm. th- there were no witnesses, high fives, certificates, uh, little office parties, you know, that happened once a week, little employee appreciation days, all these things that seem like little things, but they build up, they build into connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, such a gorgeous thing, isn't it? Sport, the power of sport, particularly for uh, men, you know, it, it is a really, it's a really natural way for men to, to um, feel connection and to have that touch and to feel like they're part of something and um, to express that. I, I think it's lovely, you know, I, I, I love uh, when there's matches on and you see men hugging and they're crying and they're just, they're so, so close. Uh, such a great way for, for men to just express that in a really safe, healthy way um, that maybe outside of a match they might never do. You know, that 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 friendship bonding, it's, it's really lovely to see that. Um, but you're right, I think working from home has been difficult for a lot of people. And not having that connection and just closing the laptop and uh, maybe not seeing anybody for weeks at a time. So talk to us about the different types of attachment. You talked mm. about being born with an anxious attachment. Is that a permanent state or is that something that we, that we can move through? What are the four, the different types of attachment and are they fixed mm. states? Um. Yeah, so I'm not an expert in attachment, um, but I guess there's four, right? So we have an avoidant attachment style, an anxious attachment style, uh, then we have a secure attachment style, and then the fourth would be a combination of maybe avoidant um, and anxious. Um, And so I guess what the research said would be that about 50% of the population in and around that have uh, a secure attachment style. And then around 23% is anxious and around 23% would be avoidant. And that 4% then would be that less common um, attachment style, anxious avoidant. And I I, I guess a lot of people wouldn't really be aware of that until you start to read about it and understand it. It is, it's not fixed. Um, And I'm not really so sure when it comes to childhood, but what I do know is when you are aware of what your own attachment style is, that really the secure is what is most beneficial. You know, it's when you're comfortable and confident in yourself, you can express what you're thinking, express what you're feeling. And you take your partner at face value. You're able to address any issues that you have. You know, you know um, what's going on for you. You're not afraid. You're not fearful. Um, And the other really important aspect of that is that you can take on board what your partner is saying and that it's not seen as threatening or, um, you know, it's not seen as something as a, a, a personal attack. It's like, okay, 
yeah, that's fine. That's what you think and can work through that. But when you have an anxious attachment style, there's a tendency to overthink. We're real overthinkers um, and catastrophizers and maybe hold back a little bit. Um, but it is, it's not fixed, you know. So when you understand maybe what you are, then you can work towards developing all of those really secure uh, attachment characteristics. So it's, it's great to know that I, I would define myself now as having a secure attachment, but my default is anxious. So if I'm under an awful lot of stress, then I would default to, to anxious and I would have to remind myself, okay, no, that's not really how you function now that's your anxious attachment or your worries kicking in so just you know part that and focus on you know whatever you're I'm feeling in the relationship and to just express that and articulate that um very unusual maybe to come across somebody who would be an anxious and avoidant attachment type in therapy you know I I don't believe that they are really invested maybe in that personal work. They generally don't date um, from what I can understand and they wouldn't do so well in long-term relationships and maybe we just avoid long-term relationships altogether. Um, and that avoidant attachment style um, would, would, I see a lot of serial daters would have an avoidant attachment style you know, they might have a tendency to love bomb without death, you know, and they would struggle with commitment um, and they would really struggle to be with a partner who's very open and safe and secure in themselves and um, because that would be quite threatening for them. Uh, so there's, um, so yeah, attachment style is such an interesting thing. Once you start learning about it, it's very hard to look back, Leo, isn't it? It really is. It opens up the floodgates. For yourself, you know, we talked about the anxiety into the panic attacks, into the depression. Mm. Where did suicide come into this for you? Yeah, um, I suppose for me, I never, I, I, I have kind of an, a strange maybe relationship with suicidal ideation. It's not something that I would have ever felt threatened by. Um Thankfully, in my own life experience, I never made serious suicide attempts, but that suicidal ideation would have been very strong for me for many years, you know, over maybe about five years when I was in that depressed state, um, when I wasn't coping well, when I didn't have a secure base. And so for me, um, uh, I find suicidal ideation like a, a stress reliever in a way you know and that will sound really crazy to somebody who's never had suicidal thoughts or who just really has never experienced you know the desire to end your own life I, I would have had the desire many 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 times um so it was very familiar for me but I was never threatened by that and for me, suicidal ideation, it wasn't because I ever wanted to end my own life. It's just that I, I I found it so difficult to be living. You know, I really, I really found it hard to just keep getting up, doing the same thing every day, feeling the same hurt and pain and to just keep going, you know. 
And that's what happens when you have depression is that, you know, my world got very small and I had maybe two or three times during that period of, of um, living the suicidal thoughts that, um, that I guess kind of understand, understood that part of me, you know, they weren't threatened by that and they allowed me the space to talk about that. Um, and so it was really quite normal for me to have those thoughts. Um, and I mean, I feel very grateful for that. I have no shame around talking about that part of my life. You know, it is a big part of me. It was a big part of how I functioned in the world. It was a big way of how I coped. Um, and I've learned a lot from that. And I guess why it's important for me now in my role as a therapist is that I'm I'm never afraid to go there with a client. You know, if you haven't experienced suicidal thoughts, I think it's a quite a terrifying concept. Um, I don't know if you've experienced that with people who have never even maybe said that word suicide or suicidal ideation. But for me, it's a very comfortable conversation. You know, I understand that it's it's um it's a way of coping, you know, it doesn't just because you talk about wanting to end your own life, um, or maybe how you might do that doesn't actually mean that you're going to follow that through. Um and the relief to be able to talk to people about that, it's I mean, it's incredible, you know, it really it's a very powerful experience to to sit in a room. You know, for me, with my therapist to say, this is what I'm thinking, you know, um, and for them to be OK with that and just keep holding you in that space and say, OK, that's OK. You know, um, don't be afraid of what you're feeling and that you do have a purpose and what you're feeling. Not that it's normal, but um, it was just how I was coping at that time. And so when somebody else normalizes that for you, gosh. That's such a, a, a liberating feeling, you know. Um, I remember feeling broken, just that I was broken, you know. I was having these suicidal thoughts. I didn't really know how to keep going, and yet I did. I kept showing up. Um, and over time, they they passed, you know. I mean, over a long period of time, they they passed. Um, so I suppose for me, suicidal thoughts, is, it's just a big part of how I function um yeah I'm I'm not sure if that answers your question Leo how, how do you how do you feel when people talk about suicide it can be a very sensitive very sensitive subject isn't it how, how do I feel when people talk about it um I don't know that I'm feeling anything as much as I'm listening because one of the things that you shared that was very powerful, powerful for you with your therapist was that they held you, you said, uh, they hold you in that space and mm. they give off a sense of like, they're not afraid of what you're feeling. And so mm. you go, oh my God, if I shared this with my mom or my dad, they'd freak out, they'd call somebody or they tell me to shut it down or you'll get over it or they'll dismiss it. Um, and here you are, you're holding the space for me and you're listening and you, you're creating a space that's very encouraging for me to keep talking mm. and keep sharing. 
and so when people are sharing their stories or their intense feelings or emotions or thoughts about it, I just fall into a, a, a listening space and I get right down in a hole with them and, uh, and I sit right yeah. with them, you know, back to back. Let's, you know, let's do this um, kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and, and so, the, you know, and, and that's the power of what you shared uh, of what good therapy can be. I've, I've heard people with horrible therapist experiences, but you know, fortunately you had a therapist who understood what you needed at that time. Mm. Yeah, she did. And really what I needed, Leo, was very simple. You know, I just, I needed stability. I needed that space to just express myself and to just be myself. Fears and catastrophic thinking uh, and everything. And, and that's what happens, isn't it? When you provide somebody with that space to talk about suicidal thoughts and feelings is that you give them space to go into what why is that happening like you know what what's going on for you that is leading you to this and what are your values around ending your own life you know so um or I mean I say values but what I mean is what 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 does it mean for you that that you're thinking this way? You know, so you can really get into depth around that. Um, and for me at that time when I was very depressed, uh, you start to feel like you're just a burden on everybody. Um, and again, I, you're never your best, you're never your best kind of radar, you know, when you're when you're depressed. And for a therapist to say, well, actually that's that's not correct what you're saying and so if you're coming to somebody and saying I'm a burden I don't want people to be worrying about me I have no purpose I have nothing to give back I can't give anything because I'm just so worn out um I think that a therapist a good therapist is able to just you know talk you through that distorted thinking um and that's a really uh, cathartic experience, you know, to keep having these really deep conversations that for me always came back to what's the purpose of life? You know, what's the purpose of going? What's the purpose of, you know, if, if, if I stick with this, if I stick in this world, what am I going to do with it? What am I supposed to be doing? Um and so for me, that suicidal thinking was about control, you know, back to control. It was about choice. I have a choice to be here or I have a choice not to be here. Um, and so for me, that's what was happening when I was having suicidal thoughts. It was kind of weighing up existence, really. Um, yeah, that, 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 that. <laughs> It's it's quite some time now, you know, so I, I'm really happy and I'm very relieved now that, that that's not something that I'm I'm trying to manage. But for me, I I guess being in recovery from depression, it's still a part of still a part of my thinking. You know, I have to work to make sure that I never fall right back into that space, you know, because it can happen 
Um, it's probably happened twice in the last 10 years where I, I didn't realize it was happening. And, and boom, there you are, you're depressed and you didn't see it coming. And with depression can come that suicidal thinking or, you know. Um, so it's again, it's back to this work in progress and making sure that I never, it's like being in recovery from addiction. You know, you just have to keep making sure that you never go back to that place. Talk to me more about this purpose of life. And the reason why I'm, I want to highlight that is it seems like a big whale to chew to figure that out. Life, to mm -hmm. figure out my purpose of mm -hmm. life. Like how, when I, when I think about that, and, you know, even as a kid, adults would say, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Like, wow, it's such a heavy question. Yeah to ask a kid yeah. but even as an adult like there's so many times where i'm like 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 right now is too much and you're asking me about life so yeah. talk to me about how that plays into control and choices mm. um for me i i i i think very deeply about a lot of things you know so when i'm thinking about my life I find that I think about it from a maybe a spiritual context that was something that also always kept me going um so for me just I I guess I just I, I don't feel that we're randomly here you know I feel like we're here for a reason or for a purpose um and so it's just something that's important to me it's something that's always been important to have meaning in life um you know meaning that's greater than just getting up going to work having a family um and I think that was a big part of my recovery as well you know and coming into being a therapist that I really wanted to have a life where I had a positive impact on somebody you know for me my therapist was one of the most pivotal people in my life I would have seen her for about eight years and I, I I wanted to be her for somebody else um so I think not for everybody but for me purpose it's a it's kind of what keeps me ticking you know um and I like to think that if my life ever flashed before my eyes that I you know that that that's what I would be experiencing you know that I served a purpose in a really positive way in somebody else's life I think I, I think um that would create huge meaning for me um until I have children and now they're my purpose so it just depends on your life stage doesn't it what's important for you at, at different stages in your life yeah that definitely can change from day to day week to week mm. you know health issues mm. you talked about transitions earlier yeah uh, finances, family, things that are going on in the world, uh, all those things play into it. Uh, earlier, you talked about the need for stability, having a secure base. To wrap mm. up here, what are maybe five things that you would say are contributing to you having a secure base at this moment? Um, five things, gosh, Leo um consistency 
Um, for me, five things. You're putting me on the spot here. I, uh, I, I know. Do, I, I, <laughs> you're putting me on the spot. I, I think I've learned that I do best with safety and security and consistency. You know, so things that are really important to me is having that routine, having conversations with people, you know, having a constant connection with maybe my husband or with my my mother, or my one or two sisters. So, I mean, that's what it comes down to for me, just to, to you know, keep, keep mind on myself and to keep having connections and consistency. I think they would probably be the three main things that would be important for me at the moment um and important for everybody you know connection consistency support and just you know self-compassion that's huge you know just being compassionate and taking things one day at a time not worrying too much about the future um so that was probably more than five leo (laughs) no i love that and i love that you said taking things one day at a time because i think that Mm -hmm. for some people the purpose of life could be just be the purpose of your day. Like what's the purpose of the yeah. day or, or what's the purpose of this moment? If if, the, if that life question is too big, whittle it down to what's mm. the purpose of the next five minutes, the next 10 seconds, yeah. uh, make it as small as possible as you need to, so that you can digest that. I mean, liquefy it if you have to turn it into a smoothie, but um, it's all about you making sure that you're asking the right question. So that you can nurture yourself and feel safe and secure. Mm. Is there a book that you have reread or have gifted to others? It could be fiction, nonfiction. Um, a book that I have re-gifted. Oh, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I think that for me is such a powerful book. So I, I've definitely passed it on to people. Um, that's a really gorgeous book, um, lovely biography. It's so honest and open and talks about unconditioning. Um, so I would say Glennon Doyle's book was, has definitely been a re-gifter. Yeah. I love it. And then is there any part of your story that you think would be of value to anyone listening who may be struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts? Mm. Yeah, I love when you ask this question at the end of um, interviews. I mean, I, I, I think that I would say to anybody is, you know, just keep breathing, keep breathing, you know, hold on and just trust that your life has a purpose for you and for other people, you know, just keep holding on, keep breathing. Find, find find somebody, even one or two people to just share your your story and your trauma and your experience with and keep going. Yeah, it's worth it. It will be worth it. Even if you don't believe it, the day of that day will come. I love it. And how can people reach out to you? Where can they find you? Yeah, so um, you can find me on my website, which is orlareed.com. Um, I work with a lot of Irish people online here and a lot of Irish people around the world. But if anybody wants to get in touch, I would love to hear from them. Um, my email address is info at orlareed.com. Thank you so much, Orla. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you 
going to get help for calling the 988 or any of the other international phone numbers that are listed. If you're in Ireland, if you're in Budapest, if you're in Peru or Brazil, wherever you are in the world, there are international numbers where you can talk, chat, text. You can go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and get your 10% off your first month. They will link you up with a therapist in the next 48 hours. If you also need to feel a sense of safety, security, consistency, uh, if you need to get a routine, if you need someone to sit with you as you are sharing your intense emotions, betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get that 10% off, and let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Orla. Thank you, Leo. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.